All right, y'all. You know who I am. You know why you're here. We stopped in the middle of chapter two, book three, right as O'Brien was breaking Winston. So instead of chatting, I'm going to get to reading. All right, here we go. 1984, George Orwell, book three. Eh, chapter two and a half. Do you know where you are, Winston? He said. I don't know. I can guess. In the Ministry of Love. Do you know how long you have been here? I don't know. Days. Weeks, months, I think it's months. And why do you imagine we bring people to this place? To make them confess? No, that is not the reason. Try again. To punish them. No, exclaimed O'Brien. His voice had changed extraordinarily, and his face had suddenly become both stern and animated. No! Not merely to extract your confession, nor to punish you, shall I tell you why we have brought you here. To cure you, to make you sane, will you understand, Winston, that there's no one whom we can bring to this place ever leaves our hands uncured? We are not interested in those stupid crimes that you have committed. The party is not interested in the overt act. The act is all we care about. The thought is all we care about. We do not merely destroy our enemies, we change them. Do you understand what I mean by that? He was bending over Winston. His face looked enormous because of its nearness, hideously ugly because it was seen from below. Moreover, it was filled with a sort of exhaustion, a lunatic intensity. Again, Winston's heart shrank. If it had been possible, he would have cowered deep into the bed. He felt certain that O'Brien was about to twist the dial out of sheer wantonness. At this moment, however, O'Brien turned away. He took a pace or two up and down, then continued less vehemently. The first thing you have to, for you to do understand is that this is a place where there are no martyrdoms. You have read of the religious persecutions in the past. In the Middle Ages there was the Inquisition. It was a failure. It set out to eradicate heresy and, and ended by perpetuating it. For every heretic it burned at the stake, a thousand others rose up. Why is that? Because the Inquisition killed its enemies in the open, and killed them while they were still unrepentant. In fact, it killed them because they were unrepentant. Men were dying because they would not abandon their truth beliefs. Naturally, all the glory belonged to the victim and all the shame to the Inquisitor, who burns them. Later, in the 20th century, there were the Totalians, they were called. They were the German Nazis and the Russian Communists. The Russians persecuted heresy more cruelly than the Inquisition had done. 
and they imagined that they had learned from the mistakes of the past. They knew, at any rate, that you must not make martyrs. Before they exposed their victims to a public trial, they deliberately set themselves to destroy their dignity. They wore them down by torture and solitude until they were despicable, cringing wretches, confessing whatever it was put in their, into their mouths, covering themselves with abuse, accusing and sheltering behind one another, whimpering for mercy. And yet, after only a few years, the same thing happened over again. The dead men had become martyrs, and their degradation was forgotten. Once again, why was it? In the first place, because the confessions that they had made were obviously extorted and untrue. We do not make mistakes of that kind. All the confessions that are uttered here are true. We make them true. And above all, we don't allow the dead to rise up against us. You must stop imagining what posterity will vindict you, Winston. Posterity will never hear of you. You will be lifted clean out of the stream of history. We shall turn you into gas and pour you into the stratosphere. Nothing will remain of you. Not a name and a register. Not a memory and a living brain. You will be annihilated in the past as well as the future. You Will have never existed. Then why bother to torture me, thought Winston, with momentary bitterness. O'Brien checked his step as though Winston had uttered the thought aloud. His large, ugly face came near, with the eyes a little narrowed. You are thinking, he said, since we intend to destroy you utterly. So that makes nothing you say or do can make the smallest difference in that case. Why do we go into the trouble of interrogating you first? That is what you were thinking, was it not? Yes, said Winston. O'Brien smiled slightly. You are a flaw in the pattern, Winston. You are a stain that must be wiped out. Did I not tell you just now that we are different from the persecutors of the past we are not content with negative obedience nor even with the most abject submission when finally you surrender to us it must be of your own free will we do not destroy the heretic because he resists us as long as he resists us we will never destroy him we convert him we capture his inner mind. We reshape him. We burn all evil and all illusion out of him. We bring him over to our side, not in appearance, but genuinely, heart and soul. We make him one of ourselves before we kill him. It is intolerable to us that an erroneous thought should exist anywhere in the world, however secret and powerless it may be. Even in the instance of death, we cannot permit any deviation. In the old days, the heretic walked to the stake, still a heretic, proclaiming his heresy, exulting in it, 
even the victim of the Russian purges could carry rebellion locked up in his skull as he walked down the passage waiting for the bullet. But we make the brain perfect before we blow it out. The command of the old depositions was, Thou shalt not. The command of the totarians was, Thou shalt. Our command is, Thou art. No one whom we bring to this place ever stands out against us. Everyone is washed clean. Even those three miserable traitors in whose innocence you once believed, Jones, Arison, and Rutherford, in the end we broke them down. I took part in their interrogation myself. I saw them gradually worn down, whimpering, groveling, weeping, and in the end it was not with pain or fear but only penitence. By the time we had finished with them they were only the shells of men. There was nothing left in them except sorry for what they had done and the love of Big Brother. It was touching to see how they loved him. They begged to be shot quickly so that they could die while their minds were still clean. His voice had grown almost dreamy. The exhaustion, the lunatic enthusiasm, was still in his face. He was not pretending, thought Winston. He is not a hypocrite. He believes every word he says. What most oppressed him was the consciousness of his own intellectual inferiority. He watched the heavy yet graceful form strolling to and fro in and out of range of his vision. O'Brien was a being all ways larger than himself. There was no idea that he could he could ever had or could have that O'Brien had not long ago known, examined, and rejected. His mind contained Winston's mind. But in that case, how could it be true that O'Brien was mad? It must be he, Winston, who was mad. O'Brien halted and looked down at him again. His voice had grown stern again. Do not imagine that you will save yourself, Winston, however completely you surrender to us. No one who has gone astray has ever spared. And even if we choose to let you live out your natural term of your life, still you will never escape from us. What happens to you here is forever. Understand that in advance. We shall crush you down to the point from which there is no coming back. Something will happen to you from which you cannot recover. If you lived a thousand years, never again will you be capable of ordinary human feelings. Everything will be dead inside you. Never again will you be capable of love or friendship or joy of the living or laughter or curiosity or courage or integrity. You will be hollow. We shall squeeze you empty and then we shall fill you with ourselves. He paused and signed to the man in the white coat. Winston was aware of some heavy piece of apparatus being pushed into place behind his head. 
O'Brien sat down beside the bed, so that his face was almost on level with Winston. Three thousand, he said, speaking over Winston's head to the man in the white coat. Two soft pads, which felt slightly moist, clamped themselves against Winston's temple. He quailed. There was a pain coming, a new kind of pain. O'Brien laid a hand reassuringly, almost kindly, on his. This time it will not hurt, he said. Keep your eyes fixed on mine. At this moment there was a devastating explosion, or what seemed like an explosion, though it was not certain whether there was any noise. There was undoubtedly a blinding flash of light. Winston was not hurt, only prostrated although he had already been lying on his back when the thing happened he had a curious feeling that he had been knocked into that position a terrific painless blow had flattened him out also something had happened inside his head his eyes regained their focus he remembered who he was and where he was and he recognized the face he was gazing into his own but somewhere or another there was a large patch of emptiness as though a piece had been taken out of his brain it will not last said o'brien look me in the eyes what country is oceana at war with winston thought he knew what was meant by oceana and that may that he himself was a citizen of oceana he also remembered Eurasia and East Asia, but who was at war with whom he did not know? Who was at war? In fact, he had not been aware there was any war. I don't remember. Oceania is at war with East Asia. Do you remember that now? Yes. Oceania has always been at war with East Asia since the beginning of your life, since the beginning of the party, since the beginning of history. The war has continued without a break, always the same war. Do you remember that? Yes. Eleven years ago you created a legend about three men who have been condemned to death for treachery. You pretended that you had seen a piece of paper which proved Winston thought. It proved them innocent. No such piece of paper ever existed. You invented it, and later you grew to believe in it. You remember now the very moment which you invented it? Do you remember that? Yes. Now, I held up the fingers of my hand to you. You saw five fingers. Do you remember that? Yes. O'Brien held up the fingers on his left hand, the thumb concealed. There are five fingers there. Do you see five fingers? Yes. And he did see them. For a fleeting instant, before the scenery of his mind changed, he saw five fingers. There was no deformity. And then everything was normal again. The old fear, the hatred, the bewilderment that came crowding back again. But there had been a moment. 
he did not know how long, 30 seconds perhaps, of luminous, luminous certainty. When each suggestion of O'Brien's had filled up a patch of emptiness and had become absolute truth, and when two and two could have been three as easily as five, if that were what needed, it had faded out before O'Brien had dropped his hand, but the thought he could not recapture it. He could remember it as one remembers in a vivid experience at some remote period in one's life. You see now, said O'Brien, that it is at any rate possible. Yes, said Winston. O'Brien stood up with a satisfied air, over to which his left the Winston saw the man in the white coat break an ampule and draw back the plunger of a syringe. O'Brien turned to Winston with a smile. In almost the old manner, he resettled his spectacles on his nose. Do you remember writing in your diary, he said, that it did not matter whether I was a friend or enemy, since I at least a person who understood you and could be talked to? You are right. It resembles my own mind except you happen to be insane. Before we bring you, before we bring the sessions to an end, you can ask me a few questions if you choose. Any question I like? Anything. He saw that in Winston's eyes were upon the dial. It is switched off. What is your first question? What have you done with Julia? said Winston. O'Brien smiled again. She betrayed you, Winston, immediately, unreservedly. I have seldom seen anyone come over to us so promptly. You would hardly recognize her if you saw her. All her rebelliousness her deceit, her folly, her dirty mindness, everything has been burned out of her. It was a perfect conversion, a textbook case. You tortured her. O'Brien left this unanswered. Next question, he said. Does Big Brother exist? Of course he does. The party exists. He exists. Big Brother is the embodiment of the party. Does he exist in the same way you and I exist? You do not exist, said O'Brien. Once again, the sense of helplessness assailed him. He knew, or he could imagine, the arguments which proved his own non-existence. But they were nonsense. They were only a play on words. Did not the statement, you do not exist, contain a logical absurdity? But what use was it to say so? His mind shriveled as he thought of the unanswerable mad arguments with which O'Brien would demolish him. I think I exist, he said weirdly. I am conscious of my own identity. I was born. And I shall die. 
have arms and legs. I occupy a particular point in space. No other solid object can occupy this same point simultaneously. In that sense, does Big Brother exist? It is of no importance. He exists. Will Big Brother ever die? Of course he not. Of course not. How could he die? Next question. Does the Brotherhood exist? Who that Winston? You will never know. If we choose to set you free when we have finished with you, and you live to be ninety years old, still you will never learn whether the answer to that question is yes or no. As long as you live, it'll be an unsolved riddle in your mind. Winston lay silent. His breast rose and fell a little faster. He still had not asked the question that had come into his mind the very first. He had got to ask it, and yet it was through his tongue would not utter it. There was a trace of amusement in O'Brien's face. Even his spectacles seemed to wear an iron gleam. He knows, thought Winston suddenly. He knows what I'm going to ask. At the thought, the words burst out of him. What is in room 101? The expression of O'Brien's face did not change. He answered drearily. You know what's in room 101, Winston. Everyone knows what's in room 101. He raised a finger to the man in the white coat. Evidently, the session was at an end. A needle jerked into Winston's arm. He sank almost immediately into deep sleep. Chapter 3 There are three stages in your reintegration, said O'Brien. There's learning, there's understanding, and there's acceptance. It is time for you to enter upon the second stage. As always, Winston was laying flat on his back, but of late his bonds were looser. They still held him to the bed, but he could move his knees a little and turn his head from side to side and raise his arms from the elbow. The dial also had grown to be less of a terror. He could evade its pangs if he was quick-witted enough. It was chiefly when he showed stupidity O'Brien pulled the lever. Sometimes they got through a whole session without use of the dial. He could not remember how many sessions there had been. The whole process seemed to stretch out over a long, indefinite time weeks possibly. The intervals between the sessions might have become days, sometimes only an hour or two. As you lie there, said O'Brien, you have often wondered, you have even asked me, why the Ministry of Love should expend so much time and trouble on you. And when you were free, you were puzzled by that essentially the same question. You could grasp the mechanics of society you lived in, 
but not its underlying motives. Do you remember writing in your diary? I understand how. I do not understand why. It was when you thought about why that you doubted your own sanity. You have read the book, Goldstein's book, or parts of it at least. Did it tell you anything that you did not already know? You have read it? said Winston. I wrote it. That is to say, I collaborated in writing it. No book is produced individually, as you know. Is it true what it says? As a description? Yes. The program it sets forth is nonsense. The secret accumulation of knowledge, the gradual spread of enlightenment, ultimately a proletarian rebellion the overthrow of the party. You foresaw yourself that that was what it should say. It's all nonsense. The proletarians will never revolt, not in a thousand millions of years. They cannot. I do not have to tell you the reason. You already know it. If you've ever cherished any dream of violent insur insurrection, you must abandon them. There is no way in which the party can be overthrown. The rule of the party is forever. Make that the starting point of your thoughts. He came closer to the bed. Forever, he repeated. Now, let's get back to the question of how and why. You understood enough how the party maintains itself in power. Now, tell me why we cling to power. What is our motive? Why should we want power? Go on, speak, he added as Winston remained silent. Nevertheless, Winston did not speak for another moment or two. A feeling of weariness had overwhelmed him. The faint mad gleam of enthusiasm had come back into O'Brien's face. He knew in advance what Brian would say, that the party did not seek power for its own ends, but only for the good of the majority, that it sought power because men in the mass were frail, cowardly creatures who could not endure liberty or face the truth and must be ruled over and systematically must be ruled over and systematically deceived by others who were stronger than themselves that the choice for mankind lay between freedom and happiness and that for the great bulk of mankind happiness was better that the party was the eternal guardian of the weak, a dedicated sect doing evil that good might come, sacrificing its own happiness for that of others. The terrible thing, thought Winston, the terrible thing was that when O'Brien said this, he would believe it. You could see it in his face. O'Brien knew everything, a thousand times better than Winston. He knew what the world really was like, in what degradation of 
the mass of human beings lived and by what lies and bar barbarians the party kept them here he had understood it all weighed it all and it made no difference all was justified by the ultimate purpose what can you do thought winston against the lunatic who is more intelligent than yourself who gives your arguments a fair hearing and then simply persists in his lunacy you are ruling over us for our own good he said feebly you believe that human beings are not fit to govern themselves and therefore he started and almost cried out a pang of pain shot through his body of brian and lever up to thirty-five that was stupid winston stupid he said you should have known better to say such a thing like that he pulled the lever back and continued now i will tell you the answer to my question it is this the party seeks power entirely for its own sake we are not interested in the good of others we are interested solely in power, not wealth or luxury or long life or happiness, only power, pure power. What pure power means, you will understand presently. We are different from all the other arcaries of the past in that we know what we're doing. All the others, even those who resembled ourselves, were cowards and hypocrites. The German Nazis and the Russian Communists came very close to us in their methods, but they never had the courage to recognize their own motives. They pretended, perhaps, even believed, that they seized power unwillingly and for a limited time, and that just around the corner lay a paradise where human beings would be free and equal. We are not like that. We know that no one ever seizes power with the intention of relinquishing it. Power is not a means to an it is an end. One does not establish a dictatorship in order to safeguard a revolution. One makes the revolution in order to establish the dictatorship. The object of persecution is persecution. The object of torture is torture the object of power is power now do you begin to understand me winston was struck as he had been struck before by the tiredness of o'brien's face it was strong and fleshy and brutal it was full of intelligence and a sort of controlled passion before which he felt himself helpless but it was tired there were pouches under the eyes. The skin sagged from the cheekbones. O'Brien leaned over him, deliberately bringing the worn face near. You are thinking, he said, that my face is old and tired. You are thinking that I talk out of power. And yet I am not even able to prevent the decay of my own body. Can you not understand, Winston? The individ that the individual is only a cell. The weariness of the cell is the vigor of the organism. 
Do you die when you cut your fingernails? He turned away from the bed and began strolling up and down again, one hand in his pocket. We are the priests of power, he said. God is power, but at present power is only a word so far as you are concerned. It is time for you to gather some idea of what power means. The first thing you must realize is that power is collective. The individual only has power as far as he ceases to be an individual. You know the party's slogan, freedom is slavery. Well, has it ever occurred to you that that is reversible? Slavery is freedom. Alone, free, the human being is always defeated. It must be so, because every human being is doomed to die which is the greatest of all failures, but he can make complete, utter submission if he can escape from his identity, if he can merge himself in the party so that he is the party, then he is all-powerful and, and immortal. The second thing for you to realize is that power is power over human beings, over the body, but above all, over the mind, power over matter, external reality, as you would call it, is not important. Already our control over matter is absolute. For a moment, Winston ignored the dial. He made a violent effort to raise himself into a sitting position and merely succeeded in wrenching his body painfully. But how can you control matter? He burst out. You can't even control the climate or the law of gravity. Then there's disease, pain, death. O'Brien silenced him by a movement of his hand. We control matter because we control the mind. Reality is inside the skull. You will learn by degrees, Winston. There is nothing we could not do. Invisibility, levitation, anything. We could float off this floor like a soap bubble if I wished to. I do not wish to, because the party does not wish to. You must get rid of those 19th century ideas about the laws of nature. We make the laws of nature. But you do not you are not even masters of this planet. What about Eurasia and East Asia? You have not conquered them yet. Unimportant. We shall conquer them when it suits us. And if we did not, what difference does it make? We can shut them out of existence. Oceania is the world. But the world itself is only a speck of dust. Man is tiny, helpless. How long has he been in existence? For millions of years, the earth was uninhabited. Nonsense. The earth is as old as we are, no older. How could it be older? Nothing exists except through human consciousness. But the rocks are full of bones of extinct animals, mammoths, mastodons, and enormous reptiles which lived here long before man had ever heard of. 
Have you seen these bones, Winston? Of course not. Nineteenth-century biologists invented them. Before man, there was nothing. After man, if he could come to an end, there will be nothing. Outside man, there is nothing. But the whole universe is outside us. Look at the stars. Some of them are millions of light years away. They are out of our reach forever. What about the stars? said O'Brien indifferently. They are bits of fire a few kilometers away. We could reach them if we wanted to. Or we could just blot them out. The earth is the center of the universe. The sun and the stars go round it. Winston made another convulsive movement. This time he didn't say anything. O'Brien continued as though answering a spoken objection. For certain purposes, of course. That is not true. When we navigate the ocean or predict an eclipse, we often find it convenient to assume that the earth goes round the sun and that the stars are millions upon millions of kilometers away. But what of it? Do you suppose it is beyond us to produce a dual system of astronomy? The stars can be as near or distant according as we need them. Do you suppose our mathematicians are unequal to that? Have you forgotten double-think? Winston shrank back upon the bed. Whatever he said, the swift answer crushed him like a bludgeon. And yet he knew. He knew. He was in the right. The belief that nothing exists outside your own mind. Surely there must be a way of demonstrating that that was false. Had it not been exposed a long ago as a fallacy? There was even a name for it which he had forgotten. A faint smile twitched on the corners of O'Brien's mouth as he looked down at him. I told you, Winston, he said, that metaphysics is not your strong point. The word you were trying to think of is solipism. But you are mistaken. This is not solipism. Collective solipism, if you like. But that is a different thing. In fact, the opposite thing. All this is a digression, he added, in a different tone. The real power, the power we have to fight for night and day, is not power over things, but over men. He paused, and for a moment assumed again his air of schoolmaster, questioning a promising pupil. How does one man assert his power over the other, Winston? Winston thought. By making him suffer, he said. Exactly. By making him suffer. Obedience is not enough. Unless he is suffering, how can he be sure that he is obeying your will and not his own? Power is inflicting pain and humiliation. Power is in tearing humans' minds to pieces and putting them together again in new shapes of your own choosing. Do you begin to see, then, what kind of world we are creating? 
what is the exact opposite of the stupid hedonistic utopias that old reformers imagined a world of fear and treachery and torment a world of trampling and being trampled upon a world which will not grow not less but more merciless as it refines itself progress in our world will will be progress towards more pain the old civilizations claimed that they were founded on love and justice. Ours founded upon hatred. In our world, there will be no emotions except fear, rage, triumph, and self-abasement. Everything else we shall destroy. Everything. Already we are breaking down the habits of thought which have survived before the revolution. We have cut links between child and parent, and man and woman, and, bet and between man and man, and between man and woman. No one dares trust a wife or a child or a friend any longer. In the future there will be no wives, no friends. Children will be taken from their mother at birth, as one takes eggs from a hen. The sex instinct will be eradicated. Procreation will be an annual formality, like the renewal of a ration card. We shall abolish the orgasm. We, our neurologists, are working upon it now. There will be no loyalty, except loyalty towards the party. There will be no love, except love of Big Brother. There will be no laughter, except the laugh of triumph over defeated enemies. There will be no art, no literature, no science. When we are omnipotent, we shall have no more need of science. There will be no distinction between beauty and ugliness. There will be no curiosity, no enjoyment of processes of life. All competing pleasures will be destroyed. But always, we do not forget this, Winston. Always there will be an intoxication of power, constantly increasing, constantly growing subtler. Always, at every moment, there will be the thrill of victory, the sensation of trampling on an enemy who is helpless. If you want a picture of the future, imagine a boot stamping on a human's face forever. He paused, as though he expected Winston to speak. Winston had tried to shrink back into the surface of the bed again. He could not say anything. His heart seemed to be frozen. O'Brien went on. And remember that it is forever. The face will always be there to be stamped upon. The heretic, the enemy of society, will always be there so that he can be defeated and humiliated over and over again. Everything that you have undergone since you have been in our hands, that all that will continue and worse, the espionage, the betrayals, the arrests, the tortures, the executions, the disappearances will never cease. It'll be a world of terror as much as a world of triumph. The more the party is powerful, the less it will be tolerant. The weaker the op op opposition, the tighter the definition 
Goldstein and his heresies will live forever. Every day, at every moment, they will be defeated, discredited, ridiculed, spat upon, yet they will always survive. This drama that I have played out with you during, our, during seven years will be played out over and over and over again generation after generation always in subtler forms we always we shall have the heretic here at our mercy screaming with pain broken up contemptible and in the end utterly penitent saved from himself crawling to our feet at his own accord that is a world we are preparing winston a world of victory after victory triumph after triumph after triumph an endless pressing 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 upon the nerve of power you are beginning i can see to realize what the world will be like but in the end you will do more than understand it you will accept it become it become part of it Winston had recovered himself sufficiently to speak. "'You can't,' he said weakly. "'What do you mean by that remark, Winston?' "'You cannot create such a world as you described. "'It's a dream. It's impossible.' "'Why? "'It's impossible to found a civilization on fear, hatred, and cruelty. "'It would never endure.' "'Why not? It would have no vitality. It would disintegrate. It would commit suicide. Nonsense. You are under the impression that hatred is more exhausting than love. Why should it be? And if it were, what difference would it make? Suppose we chose to wear ourselves out faster. Suppose that we quicken the tempo of human life until men are senile at thirty still what difference would it make can you not understand that the death of the individual is not death the party is immoral immortal as usual the voice had battered winston into helplessness moreover he was in dread that if he persisted in his disagreement o'brien twist the dial again and yet he could not keep silent feebly without arguments with nothing to support him except his inarticulate horror of what o'brien had said he returned to the attack i don't know i don't care somehow you will fail something you will defeat you life will defeat you we control life winston at all its levels you are imagining that there is something called human nature which will be outraged by what we do and will turn against us but we create human nature men are indefinite indefinitely malleable and perhaps you have returned to your old idea that the proletarians or the slaves will arise and overthrow us Put it out of your mind. They are helpless, like the animals. Humanity is the party. The others outside 
irrelevant. I don't care. In the end, they will beat you. Sooner or later, they will see you for who you are, and they will tear you to pieces. Do you see any evidence that this is happening, or any reason why it should? No. I believe it. I know that you will fail. There's something in the universe, I don't know, some spirit, some principle, that you will never overcome. Do you believe in God, Winston? No. Then what is it, this principle that will defeat us? I don't know. The spirit of man. And you consider yourself a man? Yes. If you are a man, Winston, you are the last man. Your kind is extinct. We are the inheritors. Do you understand that you are alone? You are outside history. You are non-existent. His manner changed, and he said more harshly, And you consider yourself morally superior to us with our lies and our cruelty. Yes, I consider myself superior. O'Brien did not speak. Two other voices were speaking. After a moment, Winston recognized one of them as his own. It was the soundtrack of the conversation he had with O'Brien on the night he had enrolled himself into the Brotherhood. He heard himself promising to lie, to steal, to forge, to murder, to encourage drug-taking and prostitution, to disseminate venereal diseases, to throw vitriol in a child's face. O'Brien made a small impatient gesture as to say the demonstration was hardly worth making. Then he turned a switch and the voices stopped. Get up from that bed, he said. The bonds loosened themselves. Winston lowered himself to the floor and stood up unsteadily. You are the last man, said O'Brien. You are the guardian of the human spirit. You shall see yourself as you are. Take off your clothes. Winston undid a bit of string that held his overalls together. The zip fastener had long been wrenched out of them. He could not remember at any time since his arrest he had taken all of his clothes off at once. Beneath the overalls his body was looped with filthy, yellowish rags, just recognizable as the remnants of underclothes. As he slid them to the ground, he saw there was a three-sided mirror at the far end of the room. He approached it and stopped short. An involuntary cry had broken out of him. Go on, said O'Brien. Stand between the wings of the mirror, and you shall see the view as well. He stopped because he was frightened. A bowed, gray-colored skeleton thing was coming towards him. Its actual appearance was frightening, and not merely the fact that he knew it to be himself. He moved closer to the glass. The creature's face seemed to be protruded because of its bent carriage. A forlorn, jailbird's face with a knobbly forehead running back against a bald skull 
a crooked nose, a battered-looking cheekbones, above which the eyes were fierce and watchful. The cheeks were seamed, the mouth had a drawn-in look. Suddenly, certainly it was his own face, but it seemed to him that it changed more than he changed inside. The emotions it registered would be different from the ones he felt. He had gone partially bald, for in the moment he thought that he had gone gray as well, but it was only the scalp that was gray. Except for his hands and a circle of his face, his body was gray all over with ancient ingrained dirt. Here and there under the dirt there were red scars of wounds, and near the ankles the varicose ulcer was an inflamed mass with flakes of skin peeling off it. But the truly frightening thing was the emaciation of his body. The barrel of his ribs was narrow as that of a skeleton. The legs had shrunk so that the knees were thicker than the thighs. He saw now what O'Brien meant by seeing the side view. The curvature of the spine was astonishing. The thin soldiers, so, the thin shoulders were hunched forward as to make a cavity of the chest. The scrawny neck seemed to be bending over under the weight of the skull. At a guess, he would have said that it was the body of a man of sixty, suffering from such some malignant disease. You have thought sometimes, said O'Brien, that my face, the face of a member of the inner party, looks old and worn. What do you think of your own face? He seized Winston's shoulder and spun him around so he was facing him. Look at the condition you are in, he said. Look at that filthy grime all over your body. Look at the dirt between your toes. Look at that disgusting running sore on your leg. Do you know that you stink like a goat? Probably you have ceased to notice it. Look, do you see? I can make my thumb and forefinger meet around your bicep. I could snap your neck like a carrot. Do you know that you've lost 25 kilograms since you've been in our hands? Even your hair is coming out in handfuls. Look. He plucked at Winston's head and brought away a tuft of hair. Open your mouth. Nine, ten, eleven teeth left. How many had you had when you came to us? And the few you have left are dropping out of your skull. Look here. And he seized one of Winston's remaining front teeth between his powerful thumb and forefinger. A twinge of pain shot through Winston's jaw. O'Brien had wrenched the loose tooth out by its roots. He tossed it across the cell. You are rotting away, he said. You are falling to pieces. What are you? A bag of filth. Now turn around. Look in that mirror again. Do you see that thing facing you? That is the last man. If you are human, that is humanity. Now put your clothes on again. Winston began to dress himself with slow, stiff movements. 
Until now, he did not seem to notice how thin and weak he was. Only one thought stirred in his mind. That he must have been in this place longer than he had imagined. Then suddenly, as he fixed the miserable, miserable rags round himself, a feeling of pity for his ruined body overcame him. Before he knew what he was doing, he had collapsed onto a small stool that stood beside the bed and burst into tears. He was aware of his ugliness, his gracelessness, a bundle of bones and filthy underclothes, sitting, weeping, in the harsh white light. But he could not, but he could not stop himself. O'Brien laid a hand on his shoulder, almost kindly. It will not last forever, he said. You can escape from whenever you from it whenever you choose. Everything depends on yourself. You did this, sobbed Winston. You reduced me to this state. No, Winston. You reduced yourself to it. This is what you accepted when you set yourself up against the party. It was all contained in that first act. Nothing has happened that you didn't foresee. He paused and went on. We've beaten you, Winston. We have broken you up, and you have seen what your body is like. Your mind is in the same state. I do not care if there can be much pride left in you. You have been kicked and flogged and insulted. You have screamed with pain. You have rolled on the floor in your own blood and vomit. You have whimpered for mercy. You have betrayed everybody and everything. Can you think of a single degradation that has not happened to you? Winston had stopped weeping, though. The tears were still oozing out of his eyes. He looked up at O'Brien. I have not betrayed Julia, he said. O'Brien looked down at him thoughtfully. No, he said. No, that is perfectly true. You have not betrayed Julia. This particular reverence for O'Brien, which seemed able to destroy, flooded Winston's heart again. How intelligent he thought. How intelligent. Never did O'Brien fail to understand what was said to him. Anyone else on earth would have answered promptly that he had betrayed Julia. For what was there that he had not screwed out of him under the torture? He had told them everything. He knew about her, her habits, her character, her past life. He had confessed in the most trivial detail everything that happened at their meetings, all the things he said to her, she to him, their black market meals, their adulteries, their vague plottings against the party, everything. And yet, in the sense in which he intended the word, he had not betrayed her. He had not stopped loving her. His feelings towards her had remained the same. O'Brien had seen what he meant without the need for explanation. Tell me, he said, how soon will they shoot me? 
It might be a long time, said O'Brien. You are a very difficult case. But don't give up hope. Everyone is cured sooner or later. And in the end, we shall shoot you. Chapter 4 He was much better. He was growing fatter and stronger every day. It was proper to speak of days. The white light and the humming sound were still the same as ever, but the cell was a little more comfortable than the others he had been in. There was a pillow and a mattress on the plank bed, a stool to sit on. They had given him a bath. They allowed him to wash himself fairly frequently in a tin basin. They had even given him warm water to wash with. They had given him new underclothes and a clean suit of overalls. They had dressed his varicose ulcer with soothing ointment. They had pulled out the remnants of his teeth and given him a new set of dentures. Weeks or months must have passed. It would have been possible now to keep count of the passage of time, if he had felt any interest in doing so. Since he was being fed at what appeared to be regular intervals, he was getting, he judged, three meals in the twenty-four hours. Sometimes he wondered dimly whether he was getting them by night or by day, and the food was surprisingly good, with meat every third meal. Once there was even a pack of cigarettes. He had no matches, but the never-speaking guard who brought his food would give him a light. The first time he tried to smoke it made him sick, but he persevered and spun the packet out for a long time, smoking half a cigarette after each meal. They had given him a white slate with a stump of pencil tied to the corner. At first, he made no use of it. When he was awake, he was completely torpid. Often he would lie from one meal to the next, almost without stirring, sometimes asleep, sometimes waking into vague reveries in which it was too much trouble to open his eyes. He had long grown used to sleeping, with a strong light on his face, it seemed to make no difference, except that one's dreams were more coherent. He dreamt a great deal all through the this time, and there were always happy dreams. He was in the golden country, or he was sitting among the enormous, glorious, sunlit ruins with his mother, with Julia, with O'Brien, not doing anything merely sitting in the sun, talking of peaceful things. Such thoughts as he had when he was awake were mostly about his dreams. He seemed to have lost the power of intellectual effort, how that the stimulus of pain had been removed. He was not bored. He had no desire for concentrate conversation or distraction merely to be alone, not to be beaten or questioned, to have enough to eat and to be clean all over was completely satisfying. 
By degrees he came to spend less time asleep, but he still felt no impulse to get off the bed. All he cared for was to lie quiet and feel the strength gathering in his body. He would finger himself here and there, trying to make sure it was not an illusion that his muscles were growing rounder and his skin tauter. Finally, it was established beyond a doubt that he was growing fatter. His thighs were now definitely thicker than his knees. After that, reluctantly at first, he began exercising himself regularly. A little while, he could walk three kilometers, measured by pacing the cell. His bowed shoulders were going straighter. He attempted more elaborate exercises and was astonished and, humi and humiliated to find that he could what things he could not do. He could not move out of a walk. He could not hold his stool out at arm's length. He could not stand on one leg without falling over. He squatted down on his heels and found that with agonizing pains in his thighs and calves, he could just lift himself to a standing position. He lay flat on his belly and tried to lift his weight by his hands. It was hopeless. He could not raise himself a centimeter. But after a few more days and a few more meal times, even that feat was accomplished. A time came when he could do he could do it six times running. He began to grow, actually proud of his body, to cherish an intermittent belief that his face was growing back to normal. Only when he chanced to put his hand over his bald scalp did he remember the seamed, ruined face that had looked back at him out of the mirror. His mind grew more active. He sat down on the plank bed, his back against the wall, and his slate on his knees, and he set to work, deliberately at task of re-educating himself. He had capulated. That was agreed. In reality, as he now saw, he had been ready to capulate long before he had taken the decision. From the moment when he was inside the ministry of love, and yes, even during those minutes when he and Julia had stood helpless while the iron voice from the telescreen told them what to do. He had grasped the frivolity, the shallowness of his attempt to set himself against the power of the party. He knew now that for seven years the thought police had watched him like a beetle under a magnifying glass. There was no physical act, no words spoken aloud. They that they had not noticed, no train of thought that he had been able to infer. Even the speck of whitish dust on the cover of his diary had been carefully replaced. They had played soundtracks to him, shown him photographs, some of the photographs of Julian himself. Yes, even he could not fight against the party any longer. Besides, the party was in the right. It must be so. How could the immortal collective brain be mistaken? By what external standards could you check its judgment? The sanity was statistical. 
It was merely a question of learning to think as they thought. Only. The pencil felt thick and awkward in his fingers. He began to write down the thoughts that came into his head. He wrote first in large, clumsy capitals. Freedom is slavery. Then almost without a pause, he wrote beneath it two and two make five. But then there was sort of a check, his mind as though shying away from something, unable to concentrate. He knew what would come next, but for the moment he could not recall it. When he did recall it, it was only by consciously reasoning out what it must be, and it did not come from its own accord. He wrote, God is power. He accepted everything. The past was alterable. The past had never been altered. Oceania was at war with East Asia. Oceania at war had always been at war with East Asia. Jones, Aronson, and Rutherford were guilty of crimes they were charged with. He had never seen the photograph that they disapproved their, that disproved their guilt. It never existed. He had invented it. He remember he remembered remembering contrary things. They were false memories, products of self deception. How easy it all was. Only surrender and everything else followed. It was like swimming against the current that swept you backwards, however hard you struggled, and then suddenly deciding to turn around and go with the current instead of opposing it. Nothing had changed except your own attitude. The predestined thing happened in any case. He hardly knew why he had ever rebelled. Everything was easy, except anything could be true. The so-called laws of nature were nonsense. The laws of gravity were nonsense. If I wished... O'Brien had said, I could float off this floor like a soap bubble. Winston worked it out. If he thinks he floats off the floor, and I simultaneously think I see him do it, then the thing happens. Suddenly, like a lump of submerged wreckage breaking through the surface of the water, the thought burst into his mind. It doesn't really happen. We imagine it. It is hallucination. He pushed the thought under instantly. The fallacy was obvious. It was presupposed that somewhere or another, outside oneself, there was a real world where real things happened. But how could you how could there be such a world? What knowledge have we of anything? save through our own minds. All happenings are in the mind. Whatever happens in all minds truly happens. He had no difficulty in disposing of the fallacy. He was in no danger of succumbing to it. He realized, nevertheless, that it ought never have occurred to him. The mind should develop a blind spot whenever dangerous thoughts 
presented itself. The process should be automatic, instinctive. Crime stop, they called it in new speak. He set to work to exercise himself in crime stop. He presented himself with propositions. The party says the earth is flat. The party says that ice is heavier than water. And he trained himself in not seeing or not understanding the arguments that contradicted them. It was not easy. It needed great powers of reasoning and improvisation. The arithmetical problems raised for an instant by such statements as two and two make five were beyond his intellectual grasp. It needed to be a sort of athleticism of the mind, an ability at one moment to make the most delicate use of logic and at the next be unconscious of the crudest illogical errors. Stupidity was necessary as intelligence and as indifferent and, and as difficult to attain. All the while, with one part of his mind, he wondered how soon they would shoot him. Everything depends on yourself, O'Brien had said, but he knew there was no conscious act which he could bring it near. It had been, it might have been ten minutes hence, or ten years. They might keep him for years in solitary confinement. They might send him to a labor camp. They might release him for a while, as they sometimes did. It was perfect, perfectly possible that before he was shot, the whole drama of his arrest and interrogation would be enacted all over again. The one certain thing was that death never came at an expected moment. The tradition, the unspoken tradition, somehow you knew it though you never heard it said that they would shoot you from behind, always in the back of the head, without warning, as you walk down a corridor from cell to cell. One day, but one day was not the right expression, just as probably it was the middle of the night. Once he fell into a strange, blissful reverie, he was walking down the corridor, waiting for the bullet. He knew it was coming in any moment. Everything was settled, smoothed out, reconciled. There were no more doubts, no more arguments, no more pain, no more fear. His body was healthy and strong. He walked easily, with the joy of movement and with a feeling of walking in sunlight. He was not any longer in the narrow corridors of the Ministry of Love. He was in the enormous sunlit passage, a kilometer wide, down which he had seemed to walk in delirium, induced by drugs. He was in the Golden Country, following the foot track across the old rabbit crop pasture. He could feel the short, springy turf under his feet and the gentle sunshine on his face at the edge of the field were the elm trees faintly stirring and somewhere beyond the stream where the dace lay 
in the green pools under the willows. Suddenly he started up with a shock of horror. A sweat broke out on his backbone. He heard himself cry aloud, Julia, 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 my love, Julia. For a moment he had been in an overwhelming hallucination of her presence. She had seemed to be not merely with him, but inside him. It was as though she had gotten into the texture of his skin. In that moment, he loved her far more than he had ever done when they were together and free. Also, he knew that somewhere or another she was still alive and needed his help. He lay back on the bed, tried to compose himself. What had he done? How many years had he added to his servitude by that one moment of weakness? In another moment, he would hear the tramp of boots outside. They could not, they could not let such an outburst go unpunished. They would know now, if they had not known before, that he was breaking the agreement he had made with them. He obeyed the party, but he still hated the party. In the old days, he had hidden a heretical mind behind an appearance of conformity. Now he had retreated a step further. In the mind he had surrendered, but he had hoped to keep the inner heart inviolate. He knew that he was in the wrong, but he preferred to be in the wrong. They would understand that. Brian would understand that. It was all confessed in that one single foolish cry. He would have to start all over again. It might take years. He ran ahead. He ran a hand over his face, trying to familiarize himself with the new shape. There were deep furrows in his cheeks. The cheekbones felt sharp. The nose flattened. Besides, since last seeing himself in the glass, he had been given a completely new set of teeth. It was not easy to preserve inscrutability when you did not know what your face looked like. In any case, mere control of the features was not enough. For the first time, he perceived that what that if you want to keep a secret, you must also hide it from yourself. You must know that all the while that it was there, but that you, it is needed, you must never let it emerge into your consciousness in any shape, any form that could be given a name. From onwards, he must not only think right, he must feel right, dream right, and all the while he kept his hatred locked up inside of him like a ball of matter which was part of himself and yet unconnected with the rest of him kind of like a cyst. One day they would decide to shoot him. You could not tell when it was when it would happen, but a few seconds beforehand it should be possible to guess. It was always from behind, walking down a corridor. Ten seconds would be enough, 
and that time the world inside him could turn over and then suddenly without a word uttered without a check in his step without the changing of a line in his face suddenly the camouflage would be pulled down and bang you would go the batteries of his hatred hatred would fill him like an enormous roaring flame and almost in the same instant bang would go the bullet too late or too early it would have blown his brains to pieces before he could reclaim it the heretical thought would be unpunished unrepented out of his reach forever they would have blown a hole in their own perfection to die hating them that was freedom he shut his eyes it was more difficult than accepting an intellectual discipline it was a question of degrading himself mutilating himself he had got to plunge into the filthiest filth what was the most horrible sickening thing of all he thought of big brother the enormous face because of constantly seeing it on posters he always thought of it as being a meter wide with his heavy mustache and the eyes that followed you to and fro seemed to float into his mind and of its own accord what were his true feelings towards big brother there was a heavy tramp of boots in the passage the steel door swung open with a clang o'brien walked into the cell behind him there were waxen faced officer and the black uniformed guards get up said o'brien come here winston stood opposite him o'brien took winston's shoulders between his strong hands and looked at him closely you have had thoughts of deceiving me he said that was stupid stand up straighter and look me in the face he paused and went on in a gentler tone you are improving intellectually there is very little wrong with you it is only emotionally that you have failed to make progress tell me winston and remember no lies you know where i am always able to detect a lie what are your true feelings towards big brother i hate him you hate him good then the time has come for you to take the last step you must love big brother it is not enough to obey him you must love him and he released winston with a little push towards the guards room 101 he said all right that ends the reading for tonight we got through three chapters actually we will begin our last session of 1984 on Friday with Chapter 5. Good night.